Thank you for gathering with us here today. We are uh, coming to the book of Acts again today to once again consider the early stages of the expanse of God's church as he was uh, bringing his church along uh, unto the ends of the earth. We're going to be looking at a particular passage today from the Apostle Paul's life, which really is going to uh, bring us to the completion of the book of Acts. Uh, you might say, wow, this seems like it's uh, interesting. It's only Acts 21. How's it going to bring us to the completion of Acts? Well, here in this passage today, we're going to see that the Apostle Paul gets arrested. And from here on out, he finds himself in chains uh, as a prisoner uh, because of what uh, a false accusation which has been made about him by the Jews as he is finding himself in the temple. Uh, We'll see that he is going to make it all the way to Rome to have his trial heard. But in the beginning time, as we look to Acts chapter 21 today, from verse 27 on to verse as we seek to live our lives to the glory of God. We're going to learn what it means to uh, see the situation and to not allow for the trial to define us, but rather to allow for our own witness to continue to spring forth even in the midst of a very, very difficult time that we might find ourselves to be in in our lives. And so as you come to this passage today with me in Acts chapter 21, verse 27 to verse 40, we're again going to see this initial scene. Paul's arrested. It's a terrible, terrible time in his life. But rather than allowing for that trial to just destroy his, his worship and his uh, bringing glory to God wherever he is, he instead seizes this moment as an opportunity to bring glory to God's name. So again, Acts 21, verse 27 says, When the seven days were almost completed, the Jews from Asia, seeing him in the temple, stirred up the whole crowd and laid hands on him, crying out, Men of Israel, help! This is the man who is teaching everyone everywhere against the people and the law in this place. Moreover, he even brought Greeks into the temple and has defiled this holy place. For they had previously seen Trophimus, the Ephesian, with him in the city, and they supposed that Paul had brought him into the temple. Then all the city was stirred up, and the people ran together. They seized Paul and dragged him out of the temple, and at once the gates were shut. And as they were seeking to kill him, word came to the tribune of the cohort that all Jerusalem was in confusion. He at once took soldiers and centurions and ran down to them. And when they saw the tribune and the soldiers, they stopped beating Paul. Then the tribune came up and arrested him and ordered him to be bound with two chains. He inquired who he was and what he had done. Some in the crowd were shouting one thing, some another. And as he could not learn the facts because of the uproar, he ordered him to be brought into the barracks. And when he came to the steps, he was actually carried by the soldiers because of the violence of the crowd. For the mob of the people followed, crying out, Away with him! As Paul was about to be brought into the barracks, he said to the tribune, May I say something to you? And he said, Do you know Greek? Are you not the Egyptian then who recently stirred up a revolt and led the 4,000 men of the assassins out into the wilderness? Paul replied, I am a Jew from Tarshish in Cilicia, a citizen of no obscure city. I beg you, permit me to speak to the people. And when he had given him permission, Paul, standing on the steps, motioned with his hand to the people. And when there was a great hush, he addressed them in the Hebrew language, saying, Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, we just thank you that we have this opportunity to come and gather before you and your word to be able to be edified uh, through the proclamation of it. God, we know that all scripture is breathed out by you and profitable for teaching, reproof, correction, and the training in righteousness that we would be equipped for every good work. And we certainly know that even though today in this passage it is strictly narrative that there is so many wonderful principles that we can gather from your word here as we see the response of the Apostle Paul to the trial that he himself was faced with. 
God, we know that uh, from Paul's example, we are never alone in our trials. Rather, you are with us always and that we can rely on you and trust in you. And I pray, Lord, that as we come to see this passage today in that light, Lord, that you would allow for us to meet our various trials in our lives, to to live them out to the glory of your name in order that uh, through all things, Lord, our witness would be uh, that you alone have the power to save and that even in the midst of great trials, God, you are worthy of all praise. Uh, we ask that you would bless us as we come to this service now to, to consider this uh, glorious truth before us. We pray these things in Christ's name. Amen. Now, how do you respond to trials that you might face in this life? Or to say it another way, how does God expect for you to respond to the trials which you might face in life? What is it that we are to do as we find ourselves struggling with a particular burden in our lives and, 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 and rather than allowing for it to destroy our lives, how are we to respond in such a way that the Lord would be brought glory, honor, and praise in all that we do? You see, as Christians, we know that God is sovereign, He is supreme, and He is the ruler of all things. And we may also even know that God has spoken to our situation quite definitively through the Scriptures and how we are to endure the various trials that we find ourselves to be faced with. But the reality is, is that it is difficult for us to live within the daily rhythm of our lives in, uh, in, in holiness unto God as we meet these various trials. You see, the fact is, as Christians, as we are called to live our, our witness to the world, the daily living of following of Jesus Christ, there are going to be a variety of issues that we are coming to face with. Various trials, now not in the same way that Paul himself is facing here in Acts 21, verse 27 to verse 40, but there are going to be various trials which we are to meet with and not to shrink back from them, but rather to count them all joy, knowing that God is going to produce steadfastness in our faith as we meet them head on to the glory of his name. You say, how is it that people usually respond to trials? Well, there's a number of ways. One such person might respond to a trial that they are faced with by running from it. They think that the further they distance themselves from the trial, the easier life is going to get for them. You know, the trial could be anything, anything and anything, everything in your Christian life as you're following the Lord. You say, well, if this is, is, is happening to me and this is bad, well, I should turn from this rather than meeting it head on and seeing it brought to its resolution or seeing it brought to its necessary end. There are individuals who also will push their problems on other individuals. They will say, well, if this person wouldn't have done this, or if this person would have said this to me, well, then my life would be much easier. I would not have to deal with these problems that I'm facing in my life. These trials that I am meeting with in my daily life would not necessarily be happening to me. Oftentimes, it is the case that when we face trials in our life, we begin to blame God. You know, God, why are you allowing this to happen to me? God, why have you made this happen in my life? The reality is, though, is when we often shift blame on other individuals is that uh, we often need to look within ourselves to see what we have done to bring about that very trial in our lives. Proverbs gives us some wisdom in that in Proverbs 19, verse 3. It says, when man's folly brings his way to ruin, his heart rages against the Lord. Another translation has it, people ruin their lives by their own foolishness, and then they are angry at the Lord because of it. Now, there are many times when I am evangelizing with the individuals that we go up to Hollywood Boulevard with, our brothers and sisters here, and there are individuals who have grown upset with God, and they say, why has God allowed me to get into this particular situation? You see, the rea reality is, is when we meet trials, there are times in which we must look inward to see if there be anything in us that needs maturing by God's strength and by God's spirit in order that we would be able to escape that trial which has come to us. 
Still also, you have those who know trials might come and say, well, I'm just going to pack it in here in the Christian life. I know that trials are going to come. I, I realize that, that times are going to be difficult. And so the best thing for me to do is to just kind of uh, settle away from everything and anything in order that I won't face many trials in my life. There are those who existed back in Paul's day who, thinking about the rapture, which was imminent in their minds, they said, well, we're just going to pack it all in. Not going to work anymore. We're not going to worry about life's difficulties. You know, there's trials that I'm going to meet every day when the reality is Christ could come any moment, so I'm just not going to worry about life. So I'll pack everything away, and I'll just go live on my own. What does Paul say to those guys? He says in 2 Thessalonians chapter 3, verse 6, now we command you, brothers, in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that you keep away from any brother who is walking in idleness and not in accord with the tradition that you receive from us. For you yourselves know how you ought to imitate us, because we were not idle when we were with you, nor did we eat anyone's bread without paying for it, but with toil and labor we worked night and day, that we might not be a burden to any of you. It was not because we do not have that right, but to give you in ourselves an example to imitate. For even when we were with you, we would give you this command. If anyone is not willing to work, let him not eat. For we hear that some among you walk in idleness, not busy at work, but busy bodies. Now such persons we command and encourage in the Lord Jesus Christ to do their work quietly and to earn their own living. Rather than packing it in and, and seeing the problems which meet because really if you try to escape problems by just packing everything in and going and living in a, in a wall somewhere, those are going to bring problems in and of themselves. There is no way that the Christian, as they live the Christian life, is ever going to be able to escape the various trials that meet our lives as we seek to live to the glory of God. There are those also the finally thinking of individuals who would say to themselves, well, there's a problem. I am going to fix it. I know what I need to do. I've got this all figured out. I am going to bring this problem ultimately to an end. Now, what I would say is that all of these responses to trials are wrong because they do not focus on the Lord Jesus Christ. Rather, they focus on other things. And this is not to say that they are entirely wrong. There is the reality in which we may find ourselves uh, running from a situation which is a trial because we do not need to allow for ourselves to be uh, unnecessarily suffering. It is the case with the battered wife who thinks that because she's under her husband's lordship or under his headship that she needs to stay in that relationship because God has called for her her to submit to her husband. That's not the case. There is not to be any unnecessary suffering that we are facing in the Christian life. Rather, we can, if God gives us the opportunity, flee from that suffering so as to prolong our life and not find ourselves being battered by an individual in an unjust way. There are also those who will glory in their suffering and they'll say, I'm not going to run from my suffering. I'm not going to run from these trials. I'm going to get the glory as I respond to these trials in the right way. Uh, suffering that martyr's death. This was a glorified position for Christians. They often wanted to become martyrs. This also is wrong because we are to not glory in our suffering or our trials. Rather, we are to glory in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ and Him alone. It may also do us well to consider that we are spending time with individuals in close company with them when it's not really beneficial to our spiritual walk, and, and we can set some boundaries in our lives in order that we would re, re, uh, restrict ourselves from, from maybe meeting some trials in our lives that are unnecessary because we're hanging out with individuals who only bring us trouble. Even still, it is also good to restrict ourselves from certain things in life, knowing that they can bring troubles that we need not have to face. And finally, it is good to have this attitude which says, you know, I need to man up and face my problems head on so that I would be able to solve them. 
But you see, the reality is, is that when we meet life's various trials, if we go about it in any other way than the way in which we see the Apostle Paul doing it, we are going to find ourselves questioning God rather than living our lives to the fullest sense that he is calling for us to live our lives in. You see, the reality is, is I have spoken quite broadly about our trials. We're going to meet various trials of many kinds. There are going to be days in which we find a trial happening this way. Other times we'll have a trial in another way. As James chapter 1 verse 2 says, count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds. You look at Paul's life in 2 Corinthians chapter 11. Trials of various kinds were met by Paul as he was living out the Christian life. And the reason I speak broadly about these things is to to introduce this passage to us in such a way that we don't say, well, I'm not going to struggle in this way, so this principle is not going to apply to me in my life. Rather, I introduce this passage to us in this way in order that we can see in any trial that we face in our Christian life, if we meet it head on with the principle that we see Paul living out the trial that he himself is faced with, we will do well in following the Lord Jesus Christ. Christ. You say, how am I to respond to life's various trials? How does God expect for me to respond to the trials that I might meet as I live out to the glory of his name? Well, it's quite simple. As we see from the Apostle Paul's example here, if we are going to respond to trials, however they might come, though they be various in nature, if we entrust ourselves to God and seize that trial as a moment in time to glorify his name, we will do well in meeting that trial head on. If we see that trial and we say, God, I know that this trial is going to come. I am going to trust you through this trial and I'm going to use this trial as an opportunity to glorify your name. God will certainly bless us as we find ourselves meeting that trial head on. And I want us to see this here in the Apostle Paul's life because this is exactly what the Apostle Paul does. He meets the trial head on. He entrusts himself to God. And as we will see here throughout the rest of the book of Acts, he seizes this moment in time where he is literally on trial as he's been arrested in the temple. He he seizes this trial as an opportunity in time to bring glory to our great God's name. So first we see him entrusting himself to God in verse 27 to verse 36, and I'll remind us of this again, but but also in thinking about this, I want you to notice that that we need to go back a little bit further to see how he's entrusting himself to God. So as I reread the passage here, keep in mind we're going to look at another passage to see Paul entrusting himself to God in this moment. Verse 27 says, When the seven days were almost completed, the Jews from Asia, seeing him in the temple, stirred up the whole crowd and laid hands on him, crying out, Men of Israel, help! This is the man who is teaching everyone everywhere against the people and the law and this place. Moreover, he even brought Greeks into the temple and has defiled this holy place. For they had previously seen Trophimus, the Ephesian, with him in the city, and they supposed that Paul had brought him into the temple. Then all the city was stirred up, and the people ran together. They seized Paul and dragged him out of the temple, and at once the gates were shut. And as they were seeking to kill him, word came to the tribune of the cohort that all Jerusalem was in confusion. He at once took soldiers and centurions and ran down to them. And when they saw the tribune and the soldiers, they stopped beating Paul. Then the tribune came up and arrested him and ordered him to be bound with two chains. He inquired who he was and what he had done. Some in the crowd were shouting one thing, some another. And as he could not learn the facts because of the uproar, he ordered him to be brought into the barracks. And when he came to the steps, he was actually carried by the soldiers because of the violence of the crowd. For the mob of the people followed, crying out, away with him. The very words they said of our Lord Jesus Christ, away with him, kill this man. The reality is, is Paul 
is meeting a trial head on. And the reason that he is uh, meeting this trial head on is because he is entrusting his life to God, knowing that God told him that this was going to happen to him as he went to Jerusalem. You go back to Acts chapter 20. In Acts chapter 20, verse 22 to verse 24, Paul says, And now, behold, I am going to Jerusalem, constrained by the Spirit, not knowing what will happen to me there, except that the Holy Spirit testifies to me in every city that imprisonment and afflictions await me. You see, Paul went to Jerusalem knowing full well that he was going to be persecuted when he got there. He didn't know exactly what was going to happen, but he did know that as he was serving God in the ministry in Jerusalem, he was going to be persecuted. And rather than running away from that trial that he knew was inevitable that was going to happen in his life, he instead entrusted his life to God knowing that God had called for him to suffer in this way and therefore he could follow through with what God had called him to do. In Acts chapter 21, uh, just a few verses before, Paul got a little bit more clarity as to what was exactly going to happen to him when he went to Jerusalem. This is in Acts 21, verse 10 to 13. It says, while we were staying for many days, a prophet named Agabus came down from Judea, and coming to us, he took Paul's belt and bound his own feet and hands and said, thus says the Holy Spirit, this is how the Jews at Jerusalem will bind the man who owns this belt and deliver him into the hands of the Gentiles. You see, Paul knows as he goes to Jerusalem full well that he is going to be persecuted. He knows it's going to happen. God has said it will happen, and that which God has said will indeed come to pass. And we see the prophecy being fulfilled that Agabus spoke just some few weeks earlier, now taking place as Paul finds himself being uh, arrested and beaten by the Jews and also taken prisoner by the Romans, just as Agabus said. The Jews will bind you up. They'll deliver you into the hands of the Romans. This is what is going to happen to you here Paul. Paul knows this is going to happen here. Paul knows that, that he's going to get there as he delivers the money. At some point in time while he is in Jerusalem, this is going to happen. And this is how we can say Paul is entrusting himself to God, even in the midst of the trials which he himself is finding him faced with. The Jews have bound him up, as we have read. He is delivered into the hands of the Gentiles, that being the Roman guards who were there. And Paul himself is finding himself having to suffer at the hands of these individuals for proclaiming the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, some individuals might say to Paul, Paul, you're crazy for doing this. Paul, you knew this was going to happen to you. Why would you not just go elsewhere? After all, Paul had the whole Roman Empire he could travel in. He didn't have to go to Jerusalem, right? Paul didn't have to go there. Paul, could, Paul knew the trial was going to come, and so why would he go there? Well, because this was the Lord's will for his life. Therefore, he needed to go to Jerusalem in order that he could live out the, the, the Lord's will to the glory of God. You see, people often, when they see someone entrusting themselves to God, they say, this guy is a fool. And as Forrest Gump says, stupid is as stupid does. They're saying Paul's an idiot for going to these places. What is he thinking going to this place when he knows full well that God has told him he is going to suffer for the name of the Lord Jesus Christ? You see, church, as we entrust ourselves to God, whatever might come, whatever God has called for us to do, however God has called for us to live out the Christian ministry, if trials come, we do not need to run from those trials. Rather, we can entrust ourselves to God knowing that God will see us through these trials in the way in which he has planned. 
There's a story of a man by the name of John Chow who was a martyr some four years ago or five years ago, 2018. He was put on upon his heart to go and to preach the gospel to an indigenous tribe uh, in India. This was the North Centennial tribe, and these people had never been met by anyone. And so this man, John, he said, I'm going to preach the gospel message to these individuals. As he made uh, land there, as he, as he docked off there at the island where these individuals were, they killed him immediately. He didn't even have a chance to share the gospel message to them. And some have said, this guy is a fool for this. You should leave those people alone. You know, forget about them. No, he says God had called him to go and to share the gospel message to these individuals. He was going to attempt to do just that. Some people might think he's a lunatic for entrusting his life to God and doing that. Some people might say he got what he deserved for entrusting himself to God or, or where was God in this? The reality is, is that when God calls for us to live out our lives to the glory of his name, if trials come, we do not need to flee. Rather, we can face them head on, trusting in God who will bring us rest even if it means giving up our life for the work he has called for us to do. You see, people are going to say, you're a fool for entrusting yourself to God in these trials. May it be that people see us as fools for Christ's sake, and that alone, if it means we are giving our lives to the glory of God. And what I want us to note here as we think about Paul's life is, is that entrusting our lives to God is not only in the trials. I'm not just saying as things are going well, then you, know, you just live your life however you want to live it, but rather, in all of our lives, we must entrust ourselves to God. Everything, everything that we have, everything that we are, everything that we do is God's. Therefore, God, whatever it is that you would have for me to do, may I live it out to the glory of your name and no, no one else. Now, as we see Paul here facing this trial, I want us to see how this comes about in Paul's life in order that we can apply it in our own lives in the various ways in which we might meet trials. Paul, as we read in verse 27, finds himself in the temple. And the reason that he's in the temple at this time is because you remember from last week, he was called on by James, the elder of the church, or one of the elders of the church there in Jerusalem, to uh, accommodate some of the Jewish brethren there, the brothers in the Lord, who were led to believe that Paul was teaching falsely about uh, the uh, individuals keeping the law and keeping the customs of Moses, not as it pertained to salvation, but rather just as their expression of worship to God. They were led to believe by some Judaizers that Paul was giving an outright condemnation of these things, saying you cannot do any of these things. You cannot keep the law. You cannot do the customs. You cannot keep the feast days. Therefore, they were saying Paul is anti-Jewish. Paul doesn't, Paul doesn't belong here with us. We're not going to fellowship with Paul. And so Paul, in accommodating his weaker brethren there, says, okay, I will do what you guys ask me to do. And so in verse 27, we see when the seven days were almost completed, Paul finds himself in the temple. This is referring back to Paul uh, taking up the uh, call from James and the rest of the elders there to pay for the vows of these Jewish brothers who were thinking that Paul was uh, speaking falsely uh, about what these individuals could do as they lived their lives to the glory of God. Paul is accommodating these weaker brothers, and as he finds himself in the temple with these weaker brothers, these individuals who want wanted to go about and fulfill the Nazarite vow, Paul says, I'll do that if that means we're going to fellowship together. When he's there, what happens is there's some Jews from Asia. These are unbelieving Jews, Jews from Asia who see Paul there and who know what Paul teaches, and they themselves stir up a crowd and say, look who's here. It's the guy that's been all throughout the Roman Empire teaching against Moses and teaching against the temple and teaching against the law and, and teaching against our customs. We need to do something about this guy here. We need to kill 
this guy here. They, they stir up a crowd against the Apostle Paul because they themselves hate Paul because for Paul to be preaching the Messiah, the Lord Jesus Christ, and the fulfillment that he has brought to all of the things which were presented in the old, they found Paul to be the most heretic of all heretics, and so they could not have him be in this temple place, in the, in the grounds in which Paul found himself offering up, this, uh, offering up these vows uh, for these brothers who were there, the Jewish believers who were there. Paul finds himself in quite the predicament here because while on one hand, the Jewish Christians who were led to believe falsely about Paul's teaching by the Judaizers were ready to reconcile with him, here you have these other individuals who are not believers who see Paul in that place having no position to reconcile with Paul, but rather not being led by the Spirit of God, but rather by their flesh, only have blood on their mind, namely uh, Paul's blood. They want to kill Paul as they see him in this temple area. It would be much like Martin Luther going into St. Peter's Basilica after the Diet of Worms when he renounced uh, the Catholic faith and the Catholic false teaching of the doctrine of justification by faith plus works when he said the doctrine of justification is by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. It would be like Martin Luther showing up to the Catholic Church after he said these things. There were going to be individuals who wanted this person out of this place and out very, very soon. And you say, now, are these men justified in trying to kill Paul here? Are these men justified in trying to get Paul out of this place? Was, was Paul trying to cause trouble? Was Paul trying to get a rise out of these individuals in an unjust way or in, in an ungodly uh, way? Not, not, not in the least bit whatsoever. Rather, these men who are unbelievers see Paul in this place, and they, as they respond to Paul being in this place, are unjustified in what they seek to do to Paul. And the reason being is is because these men have been led to believe the same lie that the Jewish Christians believed about Paul as he taught relating to the Old Testament Scriptures. We read of their accusation against him in verse 28 to 29. It says, These men were crying out, Men of Israel, help! This is the man who is teaching everyone everywhere against the people and the law in this place. Moreover, he has even brought Greeks into the temple and has defiled this holy place. For they had previously seen Trophimus, the Ephesian, with him in the city, and they supposed that Paul had brought him into the temple. Now, this was, if it was true, this was going to bring some trouble for the Apostle Paul. Whether or not they were right in, in condemning Paul and doing these things, if Paul had brought a Gentile into the temple, he was going to find both himself and the Gentile who he brought in on trial, ultimately this was a death sentence if Paul actually had done these things. If Paul brought a Gentile into the temple place, this would mean that the Gentile, Trophimus, would be killed, and Paul, by nature of uh, uh, aiding and abetting this individual to go into the temple grounds, this person, Paul, would also have faced the crime of uh, the death penalty, or the, the punishment of the death penalty for bringing this individual on these grounds. You see, for a Gentile to enter into the temple area beyond the court of the Gentiles was prohibited out Right. There was no, there was no way that a Gentile could enter into the temple grounds. They could not go past even the court of the Gentiles. Now, before you get to the temple, you have the court of the Gentiles, which is the furthest place. It's down some 14 steps from the Temple Mount. You go up those 14 steps, and then you have a landing place, up another four steps, and there you have the court of the Gentiles, or the court of the, the court of the, the women, rather, not the Gentiles, that's further down. You have the court of the women. Then once you go through the court
court of the women, once you get through that, you have the court of Israel. This is where all of Israel could gather. Beyond that, you had the court of the priests. This was where only the priests could go. And then you had the temple, where you had the holy place, which was where the priests could go and offer up the sacrifices, and the most holy place, where only the high priest could go once a year and, and, and offer up the sacrifice and had to hightail it out of there because he knew it was a death sentence if he stood in the presence of God for far too long. And so Paul, them saying that Paul brought a Gentile into the temple areas means they are saying that Paul brought him through the court of the Gentiles, brought him through the court of the women, brought him through the court of Israel, and brought him into the holy place where the sacrifices were going to be offered. This was blasphemy to the highest count. There is actually some inscriptions which were found in the 1800s and in the 1900s which denote what would happen to an individual if they were a Gentile and found themselves on the temple grounds. It reads this, there were four and a half foot tall stone markers which were inscribed in both Greek and in Latin, and they said, no foreigner may enter within the barricade which surrounds the temple and its enclosure. Anyone who is caught trespassing will bear personal responsibility for his ensuing death. And so again, if this accusation was true, if Paul did bring someone into the temple, Trophimus, Paul himself would have gotten Trophimus killed and himself killed. But did Paul bring Trophimus in there? No. As Luke clarifies, he says they supposed that Paul brought him into the temple because they saw Trophimus, the Ephesian, with him in the city. Now, would Paul do something like this? Would Paul, would Paul do this? No, absolutely not. Paul knew what the laws were. Paul knew the rules, and he was not going to bring about himself any unnecessary suffering. He wouldn't bring Trophimus into the temple. He wouldn't allow for his brother Trophimus, who he served with in Ephesus for some three years, to find himself be killed because he brought him onto the temple grounds. No way would Paul do something like that. And so, so Luke says he's wrong about these things. But what about what he says in verse 28 when these people are saying that Paul is teaching everyone everywhere against the people and the law and this place? Was Paul doing these things? We saw last week that Paul was not doing this. Paul was not teaching out against the temple or the law or even the customs that people would live out uh, that Moses had laid down, the feasts, and uh, the Feast of Passover, the Feast of Pentecost, which was what was happening as Paul found himself in Jerusalem at this time. Was Paul speaking out against these things? Not in the way in which the Judaizers said he was speaking out against these things. The Judaizers were saying that Paul had given outright condemnation from doing any of these things. A Jewish believer in the Messiah could not keep the law. They could not keep the customs. They could not have any part uh, in the worship of the people of God in Jerusalem. They needed to come out from there. But was Paul teaching that? Not in that sense. What Paul was saying and what Paul was speaking out against was the Judaizers tendency to say that these things were a requirement for salvation. They were saying, these Judaizers were going throughout the towns and saying, if you wish to be a believer in the Lord Jesus Christ and be saved by him, not only are you to place your faith in him, but you also must keep the law of Moses, you must keep the customs, and you must keep the feast days and everything else that was prescribed in the Old Testament by Moses. You must continue to do all of these things. Now, Paul would vehemently speak out against that because that was a gospel which could not save because that was a gospel by works and not by faith, which is the only way that man can be saved by Jesus Christ. And so, as these men are led to believe these things by the apostle, uh, that the apostle Paul is not saying, by the Judaizers, they see Paul there and they are enraged to the highest of degrees. Enraged to the point where we see in verse 27, going back just 
just a little bit, that they have laid hands on him. And so Paul, you can imagine Paul's in the temple place. He's going to pay the vows of these four Christian brothers who he has chosen to do so because James asked him to do that. And these individuals, they see him there. They probably stealthily sneak up on him and they lay hands on him and they grab him. And they're holding on to them. And we go to verse 30 here. Uh, actually, uh, verse 28, and they're holding Paul, and they got him so he can't run, and they're crying out, men of Israel, help, help, help us. They're making a, a ruckus. They're calling everyone to pay attention, and they say, this guy right here who we, we have, this is the guy that's been saying all these things about Jews and about how the fact that, that you don't need to keep the law as a Jew, that you don't need to keep the customs as a Jew any longer since you believe in the Messiah for your salvation. This is the one, and this stirs up a crowd to the highest degree. In verse 30 to 31, we see all the city was stirred up and the people ran together. They seized Paul and dragged him out of the temple and at once the gates were shut. And as they were seeking to kill him, we'll stop there before we see what happens in the third, in the third place. And so what happens here is Paul is, has these false accusations against him. He's there. He's just trying to accommodate some brothers in the Lord who believe in the Lord Jesus Christ, but who wish to keep the customs, which Paul was never opposed to anyone doing. He's there with them. He finds himself dragged by these individuals away from that, and they pull him out of the temple. They pull him out of the court of Israel. They pull him out of the court of the women, and they pull him down the steps into the court of the Gentiles, because far be it from them to kill someone in the holy place which was revered by them. Far be it from them to murder someone there. It shows the folly of unbelief. People often seeking to fight for their religion don't realize that in their fighting for religion, they themselves are the ones who need to look internally at themselves because the reality about Paul here is Paul is actually a man sent by God to the people of Israel to proclaim to them that the Messiah has come and the Messiah alone has paid the price, the penalty for their sins, and if they place their faith in him, they shall be saved. Instead of believing Paul's message, which Paul was simply just taking up the message of the prophets and of Moses and of everyone else from the Old Testament to say, look, all of these people pointed to to Christ. And instead of believing what Paul says here, they drag him out of the temple on trumped up charges and not seeing their own depravity, they are intent on killing the one who is going to tell them about the one who would bring them eternal life with God forever. You see, Paul is being brutalized here for the Lord's sake. Paul has done nothing wrong. As Peter says in 1 Peter, he says, it's no good if you suffer for your own foolishness. Paul's not suffering for his own foolishness here. Paul has not sinned. Paul has done nothing to these people to deserve what they are doing to him. But rather, Paul is just simply living out his life to the glory of God, doing what God has called for him to do. And as he finds himself facing this suffering, he is entrusting himself to God even here. And you say, how do we know? How do we know that Paul's entrusting himself to God even here? Well, by the simple fact that he himself is going through with this process. He's not saying anything here. He's not saying, what are you doing to me here? He is just letting the process go through, knowing that if it's the Lord's will that he dies here, if he dies, he dies to Christ and he will be with God forever. If he lives, he'll have an opportunity to proclaim the message of the gospel to these individuals when he finds himself gaining some freedom after these people calm down just a little bit. Even more so than this, I tend to believe that Paul, being 
being a man of devoted prayer to God, who often devoted himself to prayer, even as these pummels were, uh, these fists were pummeling him, he probably was going to the Lord Jesus Christ in prayer as he found himself being beaten for his namesake. Well, the, the suffering's not yet over. This trial is still going on, and we pick it up in verse 31 to verse 36 to see how the initial trial is led to an end, how he kind of escapes being killed, which is what these people were intent on doing to him. Pick it up in verse 31. It says, and as they were seeking to kill him, word came to the tribune of the cohort that all Jerusalem was in confusion. He at once took soldiers and centurions and ran down to them. And when they saw the tribune and the soldiers, they stopped beating Paul. Then the tribune came up and arrested him and ordered him to be bound with two chains. He inquired who he was and what he had done. Some in the crowd were shouting one thing, some another. And as he could not learn the facts because of the uproar, he ordered him to be brought into the barracks. And when he had came to the steps, he was actually carried by the soldiers because of the violence of the crowd, for the mob of the people followed, crying out, away with him. You see, this is the trial that Paul is initially facing here finally gets some conclusion. Paul does not die. Paul is actually saved, quote-unquote, by the Romans who see that there is a riot going on and being that they were called to keep the peace wherever they were in whatever jurisdiction they had, they are going to put a stop to what is actually happening here. And so you see in verse 31, uh, it says that word came to the tribune of the cohort that all Jerusalem was in confusion. Uh, in Jerusalem, on the Temple Mount, there was actually a fortress overlooking the Temple Mount called the Fortress of Antonia or Antonius. And what this fortress served as was a lookout point for the Roman guards to look out to make sure that peace was going to be kept within the city of Jerusalem as they were given the oversight of it by the Roman Empire. They were to make sure that nothing was to become disorderly because disorder in the Roman kingdom or the Roman Empire was often frowned upon. And so they have this large garrison, this large uh, fortress where they are overlooking the city. And some soldiers who are probably keeping watch over the city, they're looking down in the Temple Mount, and they're saying, as, as the Temple Mount was on the northwest, or as the, uh, uh, as the uh, Fort Antonius was on the northwest corner, they're looking down into the Temple Mount, and they're saying, something's going on down there, right? Something's going on here. The whole city is stirred up down there, and they need to figure out what's going on. And so what they do is they grab the tribune, and the tribune was the leader there of a thousand men. This was the person that was going to solve these problems. And so the soldiers, they say, hey, there's a big problem happening on the Temple Mount right now. Looks like someone's getting beaten up because I see a bunch of people yelling. There's dust flying up everywhere. You know, we should probably get down there. And so they go and they tell the tribune, and they say, hey, there's someone getting beaten up down there. We need to go and take a look. Well, in order to understand how large this riot actually was, we can understand how large it was by the amount of soldiers that the, the uh, tribune takes with him. It says in the verse uh, 32, he at once took soldiers and centurions and ran down to them. Now, the soldiers that he would take, given that he was over a thousand men, he probably didn't take all thousand of his soldiers, but also it tells us that he took some centurions. Now, centurions had a hundred men who were under their charge or under their command. So there's two centurions at the very least, given that it's in the plural, there's two centurions that come, plus this tribune, and they go down, and they are running down to the Temple Mount to get some, uh, uh, some resolution to what's going on here. So we can estimate there's probably 300 soldiers who are being sent to where Paul is getting beaten up uh, right there in the court of the Gentiles. About 300 men who are taken there. This was a lot, a lot of soldiers to try to fix a problem if it was not very big. But because of the uh, insurmountableness of this problem, they bring a lot of individuals and 
in order that they would be able to put a cause, a stop to this commotion. And so they get there, and their coming there causes the riot to stop. Why? Well, because the Jews knew that a heavier hand was going to come upon them if they continued in this riot. Rioting was going to levy a charge against them, and far be it from them to find themselves in prison for what this man, Paul, had actually done. And so they allow for Paul to be arrested by the Romans because the Romans, in one sense, they're not arresting Paul for the simple fact that Paul has committed a crime just yet. They don't know what Paul's done. They're trying to, you know, get some clarity to the situation. And so they arrest Paul, and the Roman Tribune says, okay, what's going on here? What's happening here? And as you can imagine with a large crowd, everybody's saying just a little bit of something. Or he did this, or, or he did that, or, or, you know, he did this. And, and, the, and the Roman Tribune's like, listen, I can't, I can't make any sense of this. And so what he does, and we'll just summarize the last few verses here in verse 35 and 36. What he does is he says, all right, let's take Paul. Let's bring him back to the barracks. We'll interview him there, and then we'll figure out what is really going on. Now, not content on Paul being taken away, we see the last statement from the mob saying, away with him. And this is not to say, well, just, you know, bring him to jail. Rather, kill him. They're saying, we want your decision to be to kill this man because this man himself does not need to live any longer. And so here we see Paul faced with a trial, a tremendous trial, a trial in which we probably will never face in our lives. You know, maybe we will, but, but more than likely not. We're not going to find ourselves in this trial. It is a terrible situation. But as I mentioned from the start, as Paul was facing it, Paul went into this knowing head on that he was going to face this trial and he entrusted himself to God in, any, in anything that was going to happen to him. And so I ask us this, do we know what it means to entrust ourselves to God? Do we know what it means knowing that as we live a godly life in Christ Jesus that we will be persecuted? That's what it says in Philippians and also I think it's in 1 Timothy as well, that anyone who seeks to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. Do we know what it means to entrust ourselves to God with our very lives? Do we know what it means to live a godly life in Christ Jesus, face persecution, and yet still entrust ourselves to God in that very moment? Now, sure, it's easy to do, you know, entrust yourself yourself to God when times are good. Of course, God is blessing me. Thank you, Lord. Oh, Lord, I'll praise you. I'll worship you. I'll do whatever you would have for me to do, God. As long as you keep things going well, well, then I'm your guy. You know, I'm going to do what you call for me to do. But do we know what it means to entrust ourselves to God in the difficult times? Do we know what it means to say, as Habakkuk said in Habakkuk 3, though the fig tree should not blossom nor fruit be on the vines, the produce of the olive fail and the fields yield no food, the flock be cut off from the fold and there be no herd in the stalls, yet I will rejoice in the Lord. I will take joy in the God of my salvation. God the Lord is my strength. He makes my feet like the deer's. He makes me tread on my high places. Do we know what it is like to entrust ourselves to God when we lose everything? Not just getting persecuted and being arrested, but what if we lose everything? Can we say as Job said, naked I came from my mother's womb, and naked shall I return. The Lord has given, and the Lord has taken away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. Another song that I listen to, and not just these uh, verses here, but there's a, a, a hymn that's being sung. It's more of a contemporary hymn. It's called All I Have is Christ. And the, the chorus says, hallelujah, all I have is Christ. You know, often when we say that, when we've lost everything, we say, well, uh, at least I have Christ, right? Now, this song is a, a worshipful song saying, all I have is Christ. Therefore, I can sing hallelujah. I can say praise God because all I have is Christ, and that is enough. 
You see, entrusting ourselves to God is not because of the external things that we are facing in our lives, whether blessings or in trials, but rather we can entrust ourselves to God because we know that He is worthy of all of our trust. God alone is worthy. And it does not matter if we are in trials, it does not matter if we are in blessings, we can entrust ourselves to God knowing that He alone is worthy of all praise. You say, what do I entrust my life to in God's hands? How much am I to entrust myself to God? How much am I to just deliver myself up to God for his namesake? How far should I go? Is it in the good times or the bad times? Or is it sometimes in the good times and sometimes in the bad times? No, it is every single moment of our lives we can entrust ourselves to the one who is worthy of all praise. In our possessions, in our time, in our resources, in our thoughts, in our ministries, in our failures, in the good times and in the bad times. Our whole life is God's. Therefore, we can entrust our whole life to him. You see, we know that Paul was entrusting himself to God with his very life in going to Jerusalem when he said in Acts chapter 21, verse 13, Paul answered, what are you doing weeping and breaking my heart? For I am ready not only to be imprisoned, but even to die in Jerusalem for the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. You see, when we entrust ourselves to God, we will be willing to even give up our very life for his namesake, knowing that he alone is worthy of all of our praise. You say, what does it look like to entrust my life to God? What does it look like to entrust my possessions or my time or my thoughts or my resources? What does it look like to entrust myself to God? Well, two simple ways, simple ways, and you're going to say, these are so passive. No, these are the most active ways that we can trust ourselves to God in his word and his life. The way that we can entrust ourselves to God is by trusting his word and by going to him in prayer. Two very simple truths. You know, we often think we got to get out and do something or we got to run or, or we got to hide or, or we got to do this or that. No, all that we need to do to show that we are entrusting ourselves to God is by trusting his word and by going to him in prayer. It is this attitude which says, when I go to God's word and I learn from him and what he says to me that is going to happen, I can trust him. If God has said I'm going to face trials as a believer, I will trust him. If God has said that he will save me from my sin, when I feel down in the, in the dirt because I have sinned, I can know that I can entrust myself to God for the forgiveness of my sins because God has said he will forgive my sins and remember them no more. It is this attitude which says, God, you told me this, was this would happen. You showed me this was how I need to follow you. Therefore, I commit myself to your will. It is also shown in not only understanding God's word, but also in going to him in prayer, entrusting yourself to God in prayer. In Acts chapter 4, we see an example of this. Just turn there with me because it's a little bit of narrative here. Acts chapter 4, verse 23, the believers are finding themselves facing a very difficult time in Jerusalem, just like Paul's finding himself facing a very difficult time. Uh, what's happened is John and Peter themselves have been preaching the gospel in the temple, and they had healed a man, and as they healed this man, a large crowd came, and they preached the gospel, and a number of people were being saved. Well, the Sanhedrin got wind of it, and they didn't like it. And so what they told John and what they told Peter was, you can't preach the gospel anymore. Do not speak a word about Jesus Christ any longer. And they they say, whether it's right in your sight, well, you decide, but we're going to proclaim the gospel whether you like it or not. And you say, well, what then do the believers do there? How do they entrust themselves to God knowing that preaching the gospel was going to bring some punishment to them? Acts chapter 4, verse 23 
It says, when they were released, they went to their friends and reported what the chief priests and the elders had said to them. And when they heard it, they lifted their voices together to God and said, Sovereign Lord, who made the heaven and the earth and the sea and everything in them, who through the mouth of your, our father David, your servant, said by the Holy Spirit, why did the Gentiles rage and the people's plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers were gathered together against the Lord and against his anointed. For truly in this city they were gathered together against your holy servant, Jesus, whom you anointed, both Herod and Pontius Pilate, along with the Gentiles and the peoples of Israel, to do whatever your hand and your plan had predestined to take place. And now, Lord, look upon their threats and grant to your servants to continue to speak your word with all boldness while you stretch out your hand to heal, and signs and wonders are performed through the name of your holy servant, Jesus. You see, what does the church do as they find themselves facing a trial? Well, they entrust themselves to God. How do they do it? By reminding themselves of his word and going to him in prayer. It's so simple. If we are simply seeking to entrust ourselves to God, go to his word, see what he has said about this, trust God in that, and follow through with whatever God is calling for you to do in that very moment of your life. You see, God told Paul that this would happen, therefore he could trust him in that moment as in any moment. You know what happens when we entrust ourselves to God with our very lives? Do you know what happens to the believer who says, come what may, I will trust in the name of my Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ? What do you think happens to us? Boldness. Our witness becomes so effective in the world as they see us respond either to blessings or to trials with the way in which we see the Apostle Paul responding to these things here. You see, Paul gets this boldness as he entrusts himself to God, and we see it come about starting at verse 37, and again, it goes all the way to the end of Acts chapter 28, to the close of the book of Acts. We see Paul get this boldness, which, which allows for him to seize that moment as an opportunity to glorify the name of the Lord. You see, when we entrust ourselves to God in trials that we are faced with, what God is going to do through his spirit is he is going to fill us with his spirit with a boldness, which instead of fleeing, which instead of, you know, saying, well, why are they doing this to me here? They shouldn't be doing this to me here. You know, these people need to go on trial because they're beating me unjustly. Rather than saying any of those things, instead of that, the Spirit will give us boldness to seize that opportunity to glorify the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. As we meet trials head on, first we entrust ourselves to God. In doing so, this will produce within us a boldness to see that as an opportunity to glorify God's name. Again, this is in Acts chapter 21, verse 37 to verse 40, and I remind you of it now. It says, as Paul was about to be brought into the barracks, he said to the tribune, may I say something to you? And he said, do you know Greek? Are you not the Egyptian then who recently stirred up a revolt and led the 4,000 men of the assassins out into the wilderness? Paul replied, I am a Jew from Tarshish in Cilicia, a citizen of no obscure city. I beg you, permit me to speak to the people. And when he had given him permission, Paul, standing on the steps, motioned with his hand to the people. And when there was a great hush, he addressed them in the Hebrew language, saying, now we're not going to see what he says till next week, but in the very meanwhile, as we look at this verse now, what we see Paul doing here is seizing upon this moment as an opportunity to be able to speak to a plethora of people. And what we're going to see is he does not say, I can't believe you did this to me here. He's not going to say, you know, how could you touch the Lord's anointed in such a way as this? No, he does not make it about himself, but rather he seizes it as an opportunity to glorify God 
the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. He uses it as an opportunity to testify to the saving grace of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. But immediately, just upon this moment, so that we can capture this in our minds before we close out our time here today, we must understand that in trials, the worst thing that we can do is to flee from them or to say, God, how could you let this happen to me? Rather, we can say, God, I know that you let this happen to me in order that you would use it in my life as an opportunity to refine me in my faith, certainly, but also to use it as an opportunity to glorify the name of your Son, our Lord Jesus Christ. Now, again, we're going to see in more detail how Paul does this here, but at the outset, Paul, again, doesn't say, get me out of here, you know, as he's being chained by these individuals. At this point, he's being carried, probably lifted up over the head of these soldiers because, as it was, the people were still trying to grab at Paul as he was being brought into the barracks. He says to the tribune as he's chained, he says, may I say something to you? Can I ask you a question here? You know, Paul, imagine the composure that this individual has just being beaten by who knows how many people. He's got the composure enough to say, can I say something to you here? And the tribune, as we take up the story here to see what happens, the tribune is kind of astonished that Paul is saying this to him, not because he can't believe Paul is talking to him, but rather is because he's surprised that Paul speaks to him in Greek. He imagined that Paul was this Egyptian. And you say, well, who is this Egyptian that, Paul, that this uh, tribune thinks that Paul is? You see, as, as Paul himself is seeking to seize this as an opportunity to glorify the name of the Lord, the tribune is just trying to figure out what's going on here. Uh, Paul wants to seize this to say, I want to speak so I can tell about the gospel. The tribune says, well, I'll let you speak so I can figure out who you actually are. And so the tribune thinks that Paul actually is this Egyptian guy. And you say, why does he think that Paul is actually this Egyptian guy? Who is this Egyptian? Why would the scriptures reference an Egyptian who led some 4,000 assassins out into the wilderness? Why does this tribune think that Paul is this guy? Well, it was some three years before this time. This is probably the year A.D. 57. So around the year A.D. 54, there was an Egyptian individual who claimed to be a prophet. And what he said As he went into Jerusalem, he went into Jerusalem, and and as he claimed to be a prophet, he gathered a bunch of individuals from Jerusalem saying to them, if you come and follow me, we're going to go to the Mount of Olives, Olives, and at my word, all of the walls of Jerusalem are going to fall down, and we're going to be able to overthrow this city. So come and follow me. We're going to go to the Mount of Olives. We're going to band here together, and as the walls fall down, much like the walls of Jericho fell down, we're going to go into the city as assassins. They're called dagger people in the Greek, and we're going to kill the rest of the people who are there, and we're going to overtake the capital of Israel. We're going to overtake Jerusalem. Now, as you can know, this did not happen because here we have some three years later, this Egyptian has kind of wandered off into the distance. See, what happened as uh, he was planning on doing these things was the governor of Judea, his name was Felix at that time, he got word of this Egyptian and he sent out a bunch of troops to go over there to say, you know, what do you think you're actually doing here? And so what they did was uh, they killed some of the men in the battle, some of the Roman troops killed some of the, the Egyptians' followers in the battle. They took a bunch of prisoners but the Egyptian guy kind of just wandered off into the wilderness. They didn't know where he went. And so what uh, the, the tribune is thinking is happening, the tribune's name is Claudius Lysias, what he thinks has happened is that the Egyptian has come back into Jerusalem at the very time, just some three years later that he came before, and now the people are getting some street justice on him because of what he did to them some three years before when he caused a riot to happen in, to, in Jerusalem. And so the tribune is saying, thinking that Paul is some Egyptian there just trying to cause a ruckus, but Paul says, I'm not this Egyptian. 
I know you've got it all wrong here. I'm not an Egyptian. Rather, Paul says, I am a Jew from Tarshish in Cilicia, a citizen of no obscure city. I beg you, permit me to speak to the people. And so what the tribune says is, okay, well, let's figure out who this guy is. And he allows for Paul to speak. Now, more on that in just a moment. But as we consider this today and its uh, 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 application for our own lives, as we think about how we can seize an opportunity to glorify God in the midst of our trials, we must see how Paul goes about doing this here. Paul does not see this trial and try to seize an opportunity for the gospel by taking it by force. He does not say, listen to me and the rights that I have. He does not say, you need to hear me because I am being mistreated here. No, rather what he says to the tribune back in verse 37 is, may I say something to you? He's very courteous with this man. He recognizes the stature of this man in his governing position, and he says, may I have permission to say something to you? He says, I I need to speak to the people about something here. He doesn't say, let me talk to them. You need to let me talk to them. You must let me talk to them. No, no, he does not say anything like that. He just simply says, may I speak to them. May I have permission to speak. This reminds us of uh, 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 15, where Peter reminds the Christians when they are suffering to, in their hearts, honor Christ the Lord as holy, always being prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that is in you, yet to do it with gentleness and respect. Paul, in this moment, as he seeks to seize upon this trial of his life for the glory of God, does not make it about himself, does not do it to defend himself, but rather he respectfully asks this man, may I have permission to speak to the people? And the man obliges him to do just that. You see, this was often the practice of the church to seize every opportunity for the glory of God. In every opportunity that they had, they saw everything, whether a blessed time or whether a terrible time, it always was an opportunity to proclaim the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. Look at Acts. Just follow with me here. Acts chapter 3, and if you've got your Bibles, flip through with me because they're not going to be up on the screen. In Acts chapter 3, What happens in verse 1 to verse 10 is Peter and John go into Solomon's portico. This was a place uh, near the court of the temple. And so they're going there, and they see this man. He'd been lame since birth. They heal this man. Well, this brings a large crowd, right? And a bunch of people are there. And rather than Peter and John saying, here, give us some money, we'll heal you, instead what they do is they seize that moment as an opportunity to proclaim the message of the gospel. It says, while this man clung to Peter and John, in verse 11, all the people, utterly astounded, ran together to them in the portico called Solomon's. And when Peter saw it, he addressed the people, men of Israel, why do you wonder at this? Or why do you stare at us as though by our own power or piety we have made him walk? The God of Abraham, Isaac, and of God of Jacob, the God of our fathers glorified his servant Jesus, whom you delivered over and denied in the presence of Pilate when he had decided to release him. But you denied the holy and righteous one and asked for a murderer to be granted to you. And you killed the author of life, whom God raised from the dead. To this we are witnesses. Witnesses in his name by faith, in his name has made this man strong, whom you see and know, and the faith that is through Jesus has given this man the perfect health in the presence of you all. In this moment, it wasn't a trial. This is actually a moment of great blessing. A miracle just happened, and they say, We're not going to capitalize on this other than to see it as an opportunity to proclaim the message of the gospel. Still further, in Acts chapter 4, when Peter and John were arrested, they were arrested by individuals who didn't like that Jesus was being proclaimed. After all, This was just some uh, few weeks prior, maybe a few months prior to the time when they had killed Jesus. This was during the early stages of the expansion of the church, just after the days of Pentecost when the Spirit was poured out upon all of the believers. They're saying, 
we thought we killed this guy, Jesus of Nazareth. Here there's people talking about him all along. We need to stop this here. So Peter and John get arrested. And rather than trying to defend themselves, in Acts chapter 4, verse 5 to verse 12, I won't read all of it here, but uh, we'll just pick it up in verse 10. They say, let it be known to all of you and to all the people of Israel that by the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, whom you crucified, whom God raised from the dead, by him this man is standing before you well. This Jesus is a stone that was rejected by you, the builders, which has become the cornerstone. And there is salvation in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. Flip forward to Acts chapter 8. When the church was spread because of the persecution, what did they do? Did they say, oh man, our life is over. Oh, why would God allow for this trial to happen? You know, they had to flee from Jerusalem. They left everything behind. What did they do in this opportunity of this great trial in their lives? They saw it as an opportunity to proclaim the message of the gospel. Acts chapter 8, verse 4. Now those who were scattered went about preaching the word. In their trial, they responded to it as an opportunity to proclaim the message of the gospel. They seized that moment. They seized the day in order that they could proclaim the message of the gospel as God gave them opportunity to do so. One final one, Acts chapter 13. Paul himself, his practice was when he went into a town, he would go to the synagogue and he would plan on sharing the gospel there. Well, Paul is in a synagogue. The individuals who are leaders of the synagogue there, they see him and they say, sirs, do you have anything to say to us? Paul, seizing the moment of that opportunity, says, oh, you bet I do. And he goes in Acts chapter 13 and proclaims the message of the gospel to these individuals. Church, what I am trying to get us to understand is that in our lives as believers in the Lord Jesus Christ, in whatever happens to us, we can seize those moments as an opportunity to glorify the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. And note this from the examples I've just given to us here. We do not need only look for moments to do this in trials, but given that we are to entrust ourselves to God in all of our lives, in every moment of our day, we can seize that moment as an opportunity to glorify God. Colossians chapter 3 verse 17 says, and whatever you do in word or deed, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. And also 1 Corinthians 10 verse 31, so whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do all to the glory of God. Church, as I mentioned, we can entrust our possessions to God. And you say, how do I bring glory to God in the possessions that I have? Well, whether I have much or whether I have very little, I can use that as an opportunity to bring glory to God. If I have much, I can go and give it out in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. If I have very little, I can proclaim that my treasure is in Christ. My treasure is in heaven, and therefore I do not need nothing in this life. With our time, whether we have quite a little bit of time left or quite a lot of time left, we can use the time that God has given to us to glorify his name. You know, the individual who nears the end of his life and says, I I, I can do nothing for God anymore. You know, I'm old. I can't do anything. What can I do for God? Use the time that God has given to you in your life to establish the wisdom that he has given to you to go and disciple a younger uh, brother in the Lord or younger sister in the Lord. Use what little time you have left for the glory of our great God. Seize that little bit of time you have left for the glory of our great God. And if you have much time left, though we do not know how much time is given to any of us, but if we're young, Use that moment in time as an opportunity to seize those moments where the Lord has given you great opportunity to go forward for his namesake, to do great and marvelous things for God. Use the time that you have been given to the glory of God. Also, you can say, as our thoughts are to be entrusted to God, that we can seize our even our thought process for the glory of God. You know, it's often we deal...
counseling and having a trial of anxiety. Rather than living in those great moments of anxiety, we can take up God's Word to comfort and calm our anxieties and therefore be led to praise God for His goodness and His mercy. If we wish to entrust our thoughts to God and, and seize even our moments of anxiety as an opportunity to give glory to God, just read 1 Peter chapter 5, verse 7. Cast all your anxieties on Him because He cares for you. You see, when you are dealing with anxieties or anxious thoughts, rather than allowing for yourself to continue in those thoughts, but rather cast your cares upon God because He cares for you, that is a moment in time to say to God, God, though I am anxious, yet I will trust in You, and that alone gives glory to our great God. Philippians chapter 4, verse 6 to 8 says, Do not be anxious about anything, but in everything, by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your request be made known to God. And the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. Finally, brothers, whatever is true, honorable, just, pure, lovely, commendable, if there is any excellence, if there is anything worthy of praise, think about these things. You see, in our thoughts, as we entrust our thoughts to God, we can seize even our anxieties as a moment to give glory and honor and praise to His name. And I'll give you one final one before we bring it back to what we have been considering here today. You see, even if you feel that you have blown a situation in its entirety, and you may have, but even if you have blown a situation entirely, you have failed, you have messed up to the fullest extent, you have done nothing right, you have completely and been a total, utter failure in whatever it was that you were accomplishing or seeking to accomplish for the glory of God, even in that, you can seize that as a moment in time to bring glory and honor and praise to God. How so? Because you know that God alone is the one who works all things to good for those who are called according to his purpose. Romans 8, 28, and we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good for those who are called according to his purpose. You see, Paul writes of a time when he had the opportunity to evangelize, right? We all know we need to evangelize. Paul knew he had an opportunity to evangelize, and Paul would say that God had opened the door for him to do this. There there was no hindrance whatsoever to him evangelizing. But you know what? He didn't. Paul had every opportunity to evangelize, but he did not seize that moment in time. Rather, he failed. He did not. He did not seize that moment as an opportunity to evangelize, even though God had given him the opportunity. But rather than living in that failure, instead, he seized that moment as an opportunity to give glory to God. 2 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 12 to 14. He says, when I came to Troas to preach the gospel of Christ, even though a door was open for me in the Lord, my spirit was not at rest because I did not find my brother Titus there. So I took leave of them and went on to Macedonia. But thanks be to God who in Christ always leads us in triumphal procession and through us spreads the fragrance of, fragrance of the knowledge of him everywhere. You see, Paul rejoiced in God even in these times, for he knows the one who upholds all things. Even in our greatest failures, our greatest trials, we don't need to make them about ourselves. Rather, we can turn it to the glory of God, knowing that God will bring all things to good for those who are called according to his purpose. Now, as we close our time together here today and thinking about this as it pertains to what Paul is going through in Acts chapter 21, we must understand that the Christian life is going to be filled with trials. It is. There is no escaping this. Acts chapter 14, verse 21 to 22, Paul says, when they had preached the gospel, or Luke says, when they had preached the gospel to that city and had made many disciples, they returned to Lystra and to Iconium and to Antioch, strengthening the souls of the disciples, encouraging them to continue in the faith and saying, 
saying that through many tribulations we must enter the kingdom of God. There is no way that any of us as Christians are going to be able to avoid life's various trials. But what we can do is respond to them rightly. And as we see from the example of the Apostle Paul today here, we know that to respond to our trials rightly, we must entrust ourselves to God and to seize that moment as an opportunity to glorify his name. See, often when we go through trials in the Christian life, we often look at it or, or ask the wrong questions. You know, God, why are you allowing this to happen to me here? Oftentimes, we'll never know why we go through a particular trial in our life. Paul does in this case. God told him that. But many times for us as believers, we don't know why we're facing these trials. We don't know the exactness behind why God is allowing for us to face these things. And while sometimes it may become quite clear, oftentimes it will lead to speculations and it will leave us empty, coming up empty as to to why God has allowed the trial to come about in our life. And we will be, instead of focusing on what we need to do, focusing on the wrong things and trying to figure out why God has allowed for this to happen to us. Church, we must not allow for ourselves to get bogged down with that, but rather we must meet the trial head on, whatever it might be. Entrust yourself to God through that trial, knowing that God can certainly bring you through it, but nevertheless, whether he does or does not, you still will trust him in whatever it is you are facing and seize that moment as an opportunity to glorify the name of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. You see, when trials come, entrusting ourselves to God and seizing it as an opportunity to glorify his name is not only the example of the Apostle Paul, but also it is the example of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Forget about the fact that Paul does this. This is exactly how Jesus himself responded to the trials in which he faced in his life. And if we wish to become more like Christ, as we are conformed to the image of the Son, our Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, in our trials, God can conform us to the image of his Son, all the more if we respond by entrusting ourselves to God and seizing that moment as an opportunity to glorify God's great name. Turn to 1 Peter, and we'll close with this. 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 18 to verse 25 shows us this is the very example of what Jesus did. Just as Paul did this, the Lord Jesus Christ did this. And this is so powerful for us as we think about applying this in our own lives. Uh, 1 Peter 2, verse 18, Servants, be subject to your masters with all respect, not only to the good and gentle, but also to the unjust. For this is a gracious thing when, mindful of God, one endures sorrows while suffering unjustly. For what credit is it if, when you sin and are beaten for it, you endure? But if when you do good and suffer for it, you endure, this is a gracious thing in the sight of God. For to this you have been called, because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example so that you might follow in his steps. He committed no sin, neither was deceit found in his mouth. When he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. By his wounds you have been healed, for you were straying like sheep, but have now returned to the shepherd and overseer of your souls. You see, Jesus, in his earthly life, in his ministry, he entrusted himself to the one who judges justly, that is God our Father. And as he entrusted himself to God, he was able to offer up himself on the cross as the atonement 
atoning sacrifice for our sins, bringing glory to God to the nth degree, because now whoever professes the name of the Lord Jesus Christ shall be saved, shall be reconciled to God, and because of the suffering that Jesus Christ himself went through, this was all made possible. Therefore, as we entrust ourselves to God in those moments of great trials and sufferings, we know that if we take upon ourselves to seize that as an opportunity to glorify God, we will have an opportunity to do just that. Certainly not in the way that Jesus himself has done it, but note this, that if you wish to bring glory to God in your life, if you embrace him in the suffering and seize that moment to glorify him, God will bless you abundantly in doing just that. Your life will bring glory to God. And after all, that is what we have been created to do. So therefore, let us press into this knowing that this is the will of God for our lives. Church, let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, we do thank you for this day that we have to once again come and consider your word. And God, we thank you that you are, as we come to this Father's Day, that that you are just such a a, a loving Father, a a Heavenly Father who supplies all of our needs, a Father who, who sees best that we are disciplined because you love us. A Father who sees that that we are to be refined in the fire in order that we will be able to come out of it more pure in your sight. God, we know that you do allow for us to go through sufferings and trials in this life, but as we go through these things, God, I pray that you would lead us to learn what it means to entrust ourselves to you more wonderfully and more totally. Help us to turn to your word and, and, and seek out the answers from your word, knowing that you speak to us from your word, that you have delivered to us your word in order that we would be able to, to know what your will is for our lives. God, help us to know what it means to, instead of looking at our trials, go to you in prayer, knowing that, that you hear us and answer us according to your perfect will, that, that we can have communion with you wherever we are, even in the greatest time of pain that we might ever experience in our lives. God, we know that you love us. God, we know that you are a loving Father, that you are a gracious Father, that you, that you love us so, so very much that you sent your only begotten Son in order that we would be able to be brought into reconciliation with you, God. And so help us to see this passage today not as a passage which should, should lead us to anxieties of, oh, no, trials might come, but rather to lead us to comfort knowing that even if the trials do come, as we entrust ourselves to you and, and use it as an opportunity to glorify your name, God, you will, just as you have done for the Apostle Paul's life. Give us the greatest comfort, the greatest peace, that peace which surpasses all understanding. God, help us to feel that today as we trust you. In Christ's name I pray these things. Amen.